When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count for your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of smoking audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. A production of iHeartRadio. Hello, welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. My name is Noel. They call me Ben. We're joined, as always, with our super producer, Paul Mission Control Deccant. Most importantly, you are you, you are here, and that makes this the stuff they don't want you to know. Uh, before we dive into today's episode, want to give a very special shout out to Heather, to Major Tom, and to Latro Dectus, all of whom wrote to us about today's episode first question for you guys what's the last thing you ate a pop tart strawberry frosted pop tart just now i ate a frozen uh uncrustable strawberry mm, nice and you <laughs> uh oh well thanks matt yeah i ate uh i ate some leftover korean barbecue i'm, I'm getting back into the korean barbecue game uh my marinade is not to be missed. I'll have to make it for you guys sometime. Ooh, what's the uh, secret we, ingredient? 
oh man, it's the secret ingredient is ambition, bro. <laughs> <laughs> you let it sit overnight for a few for like you know twenty four forty eight hours. No, seriously, I will cook it for you. Uh, my bulgogi in particular. Mm. I'm not saying Michelin star, but Michelin would stop by if I had a restaurant. So what would the Michelin man have to say about it? Do you think the Michelin man, the old school Michelin man would be absolutely too hammered to understand what was happening. That is by far the worst mascot for driving ever. Uh, Please check out our episode on the Michelin man on ridiculous history. Today, we're talking about food. It's one of those great unifiers, right? You can go anywhere in the world. And this is true. This is not hyperbole. You can go anywhere in the world and meet another person and you can have a conversation about food despite language barriers. Everybody is so into food. Food's so hot right now and has been for a long time. Uh, people will shoot shoot the breeze about what they've eaten, what they want to eat, what they do or don't like food-wise for ungodly amounts of time. Let's be honest. You know what I mean? Uh, it's, it's, like a, um, it's like a version of talking about the weather. And as with any other universal human subject, It's no surprise that food itself is at the heart of so many conspiracy theories and actual conspiracies. Today, we're going to talk about something that has been controversially termed food deserts, where they come from, why, and whether there's a conspiracy involved. Dang, dude, I thought we were talking about desserts today. I researched the entirely wrong stuff. I was reading about creme brulee and peau de creme, all the creme desserts. It'll still apply. Here are the facts. Okay, basics. If you live in the United States, like the four of us uh, making this show today, uh, matter of fact, if you live anywhere these days, you've probably noticed basic foodstuffs are growing more expensive. And we're not talking about weird things, like weird bespoke things like tiger meat or shark fin soup. We're talking about cereal. Grains, eggs, milk, bread, all the stuff you get right before a hurricane. Hell, man, fast food's gotten expensive. You know, I saw in the outline, he put, you got to eat, you know, which is the genius uh, tagline of checkers. But um, fast food, McDonald's, like a happy meal costs more than it did just a couple of years ago. Yo, I went to Five Guys not long ago to get some of their delicious burger and fries. And mm-hmm. I almost walked out when I saw how much I was going to have to pay to get my son and I a meal. And I was like, uh, eh, it's worth it. <laughs> that place has always been kind of on the top end of like, you know, sort of, uh, uh, you know, from more fi- the higher end of fast food. But yeah, I can imagine. But like, I think like, a, you know, a, a, a quarter pounder meal at McDonald's pushing six bucks where it used to be, you know, the extra value meal was like, I think, three ninety nine or something like that, you know? Yeah, and uh, many of us listening along today come from an era where a $20 bill would make you an emperor at Taco Bell. You might be in a position where you say, why don't I just buy the whole store, right? I remember those days quite fondly, but that is no longer the case. Global food supply chains have been pressed uh, as in a way that hasn't occurred for many, many human years. And this is 
a global thing. Like, look, if you live, if you're foodie, if you go to a lot of restaurants of one sort or another, uh, then you have probably seen notices that these restaurants are putting out where they say due to increased demand or due to supply chains, we have to adjust our prices. This is a global thing right now uh, in what's called food inflation, where the same stuff you would pay $5 for all of a sudden becomes 6 or $8. In the UK, this food inflation rate is over 10%. In Japan, it's hitting a high that has not been around for more than 30 years. In the U.S. alone, just this past year, from like April 2021 to April 2022, food prices popped almost 11%, and the trend seems set to increase. I swear I eat at places other than McDonald's, and I will not say one more word about it again, but I was wrong. Uh, it's about seven bucks here in Georgia for uh, an extra value meal or whatever they call it now uh, with a quarter pounder, but it can range. That's like the lowest of the low. In Massachusetts, they're eleven seventy nine. So, I mean, to your point, Ben, this inflation, it hits globally, but it also varies widely depending on your location. There are so many issues going into those prices inflating right now. And one of the main ones has to do with shipping costs. You guys, I, would, I know we've talked about it before. I was just looking a little deeper into shipping costs to get things usually across the Atlantic Ocean. Sure, via cargo ship. Mm-hmm. And I had no idea how much those prices had inflated and how rapidly they've inflated. Uh, just over the course of the past four years, three or four years. Um, and it's just making me think with these larger corporations that we're going to be even talking about today, like where where's that food coming from? Where are these prices increasing? I'm really interested to dig even deeper into this subject. Yes, that's a, another episode we have to get to. And when you think about like, you know, companies like Amazon uh, controlling their own means of delivery and quote unquote cutting out the middleman, somebody's paying that cost somewhere because they still have to get that stuff shipped from abroad. And if we're not paying the cost of that shipping, it's got to get soaked up somewhere else in the economy, I've got to imagine. Yeah, yeah, you might be on base there. Also, I want to point out Amazon is getting a little cradled to the grave with their purchase of medical uh, companies and insurance companies. Apple, yes, the the folks who make the phone you may be listening to the show on, they're also getting into the private insurance business. Things are getting weird all around. You know what I mean? It's 2022. One thing I want to, I don't want to be too Larry David about this, although he is kind of my spirit animal. But one thing that always bugged me is another factor. Matt, you mentioned there are multiple factors. There, There's another thing that a lot of people don't notice, which is called shrinkflation. Like every time a uh, your favorite beverage, they change the bottle, what they're doing is squeezing a little bit more profit by selling you a little bit less for the same price. You can find multiple examples of shrinkflation. It's not necessarily related to today's episode, but this is all part of a larger issue. Do you buy orange juice? Look at the orange juice in your fridge. I guarantee you it's a smaller bottle than it used yeah. to be. Or like, look at the bottles, how, look at the bottom of a lot of beverages, 
how there all of a sudden is this alcove, this tiny little alcove. The little punched in part, uh-huh. right? Yeah. 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 Mm. And, and each, like a certain number of those represents an entirely new bottle of stuff that can be sold. It's or brilliant. even a divot on the side all the way up the top. You know what I mean? That, that looks uh-huh. like aesthetic, but when you oh, really account thumb. for four of them, right? That probably equals about a fluid ounce, right? Exactly. Exactly. The, that conspiracy is real. And the problem of rising food costs is partially due to the weird arcane human religion of inflation, but it's also due to a really bizarre problem of supply and demand. I mean, yes, there are more people on the planet than ever before. I, oh, I love this. We're going to do it. We're going to do it. It's time to check the world population clock. Where are we at? I checked this morning and we were at seven, nine. Okay. All right. We are at now. All of us listening together and all your friends and everyone you ever met or will meet, we're all in this together. The world population is 7.995031991234567893001 billion people. Is that going to be 8 billion by the time this comes out? It's Friday the, t- the 21st of October. Uh-huh. Yeah, we're so close, right? We're so close. Nobody blow anything up. We really want to make it to 8 billion just so, you know, like in a video game, we want our little trophy, our achievement. So there are more people than ever before. And whether we're talking on-the-go snacks, award-winning dishes, and Michelin star restaurants, or just staples, wheat, rice, potatoes, current civilization relies heavily, crucially, on access to some sort of nutrition. And, you know, to say the quiet part out loud, if you are a longtime listener, if you're one of our fellow conspiracy realists, you have probably already heard some terrifying statistics regarding famine or what is sometimes diplomatically called food insecurity and death by starvation. Well, I mean, you know, in a lot of uh, dystopian or perhaps utopian science fiction uh, novels and films, you see sort of a universalized nutra, you know, thing that people eat. Mm. Uh, we uh, exactly we are uh, in the rare position to be able to have some diversity and choice and different flavors, and you know, it's not too far off the map to think that could be a thing of the past. If we're not careful. Yeah, it's true. And right now, okay, so we're we're verging on 8 billion human beings. Awesome. Go team. Yeah, doing what good job doing. at multiplying. Yeah, yeah. Expand, reproduce. You know what I mean? Humanity's going viral. <laughs> uh, the World Food Program estimates that at least 828 million people right now are going to bed hungry every night. So almost a billion people out of almost 8 billion. 2022 is a year of unprecedented acute hunger. The, again, diplomatic, some would say euphemistic term for this is acute food insecurity. In 2019, there were 135 million people that were facing 
straight up starvation, not missing a meal, not tightening a belt level, but dying from hunger, dehydration associated problems this year. 2022, the number is shaping up to be more than 345, 350 million. But we can't give up on humanity just yet. You know, they've been doing it for a while. They're not new to the game. If you're listening, you're more optimistic or you aim to be more optimistic, then you might say, hey, Look at all this cool stuff that's happening, you know. Look at the global supply chain that Matt just described earlier. It does allow some people access to food across the planet. You live hundreds of miles inland, but you want some fresh seafood? You got it. All you need is a little bit of scratch, you know. You want, let's see, what what else do you want? You want, uh, you're, you're like, hey, I've never been in a place where dragon fruit grows naturally, but I'd like some dragon fruit because I'm just, I, I like how it looks like it's, it's an anime uh, drawing of produce. It looks like a dice when you see it cubed. Oh yeah. Uh, when you cut yeah, it up. Yeah. yeah. And all you need is some funding. But, but the thing is, the reality is with all this choice that a lot of people have in privileged countries, you don't need lobster Newberg. On a daily basis, you, your, your diet is not caviar dependent, you know, of, uh, you know, you're not going to die if you don't eat foie gras says you. Okay, fair enough. But you need, if you are a human being, then you need something around, uh, 1500, uh, to 2,500 calories every 24 hours, something to put in the machine, in the great city that is your body. And that's where today's story takes a turn. I just wanted to butt in really quickly, just because you mentioned lobster, and I just wanted to say I am terribly sorry. I have horrible news if you haven't heard this yet. If you live, If you live on this planet and you enjoy a crab leg, specifically an Alaskan snow crab leg, as seen in the amazing Discovery series, The Deadliest Catch, uh, <laughs> you will be out of luck. The, from now until I guess next season, and then maybe every season after that, because it's the gonna po- be, yeah, yeah, it, it may be ten years. Uh, the population declined over the course of two years from eight billion to an estimated this year forty-five million, which is an incredible crash. Billions of crabs disappeared. And uh, right now, no one is completely sure why, but the primary culprit seems to be ocean warming. Yep. And acidification and all kinds of, yeah, it's bad. Which we predicted years ago. Check out our ocean acidification episode. Oh my gosh, I'm scared. You know, I don't know if I want to listen to it, Matt, because it's, yeah, it's terrible. It's terrible. Uh, As a matter of fact, wildlife in general is... uh, currently undergoing what is called a mass extinction. This is the sixth mass extinction in the history of the planet. And congratulations, if you're listening, what a time to be alive. You're alive during a time that future historians will write about extensively. You could be a footnote in someone's PhD, assuming humans are still a thing. So (laughs) at that point, so this, like, here's the the issue, right? Yes, there are global problems. There are global problems, and make no mistake, we're not being alarmist, we're not being hyperbolic. 
is hitting the fan, and it's hitting it in such a way that you will inevitably see the results. They will affect you directly within your lifetime. This is no longer a kick the can down the road problem. You know what happens when it's the fan, right? Everyone ends up covered in shit. Or at least like a really good sprinkling, you know, like the splatter. Oh, oh, let's ruin everybody's day. Let's tangent and let's go on a tangent, ruin everybody's day. When so smell and taste are related, right? The no, sensor, no. The what are sensors. you doing, Ben? So what when, are you doing? No, listen, listen, listen. So every time that you smell something you don't like, every time you like smell a SBD level fart in an elevator, I know, you're getting, elevator, that. I know uh, you're getting that. You are tasting. <laughs> you're already tasting. okay. You're okay, tasting, okay, okay. You're tasting it. That's enough. <laughs> I, s- I saw a meme where it was. Remember, uh, it was like a Skeletor. What the Skeletor means, or he'll say oh, something yeah, unpleasant yeah, yeah. And, and then be like, and, and I'm off. Off. And then he runs, yeah. you know, he said that little fact. And then he's like, and ha ha, he's gone. <laughs> but every time you smell something good, you're kind of tasting it too. Yeah, that doesn't work. Nope, we're still focused on the boop. Anyway, so all this global stuff is happening. And if you were one of almost 8 billion people, then you might feel outnumbered by these global events. You might say, let me focus on what I can do. You know, let me feed my family. Let me feed myself. Let me try to ensure as much as I can a better world for the people who matter to me. And that's why so many, that's why so many folks, you know, we've got a lot of single parents in the audience today. We've got a lot of folks who have struggled through a pandemic and we have many folks, not just who listen to our little show, but across the world who have had to make some hard decisions in the past few years to prioritize feeding their family. And it is incredibly difficult to eat healthy food in many parts of the U S and in many parts of the world to, you know, to find ways to get that 2,500 calories a day without breaking the bank. You know, I, you know what I was thinking about? I was in a, um, I was in a grocery store recently. I don't want to talk about myself too much, but I was in a grocery store recently, and I often do the thing where you shop on the outside ring of the store's perimeter, where you find the produce, you find the dairy, you know what I mean? You find more unprocessed foods. And I realized that salad, of all things, is getting crazy expensive. And I was like, wow, this is, you know, I used to be a vegetarian for many years. I was not a good vegetarian. I was what you would call a French fry and cheese dip vegetarian. But, uh, but, but it's nuts and it's counterintuitive that eating healthy for many people, it seems to require an investment of either more money or more time in terms of prep. Well, also, it's like, I mean, what's getting expensive, too, is like the pre-mixed bag salads and stuff like that that already have weird dressing and croutons. I literally saw a pumpkin spice salad recently at the store. But, you know, if you buy romaine lettuce, which, by the way, keeps much longer than those pre-bagged salads, it's certainly gone up a little bit as well, but they can't quite upcharge it the same as they can a, uh, you know, a, a pre-assembled um, kind of salad. Mm-hmm. Idea being that you're paying for the, the prep work, right? You're paying because someone's already mixed the salad. Well, the problem is simply put this. In the United States alone, almost 40 million people today, right now, as you're listening to this, 
are living in areas without easily accessible, healthy, and affordable places to get food. You've seen, you've seen these things. They're called food deserts. They're all across the country. Today's question is, how did they come to be? More importantly, is there a conspiracy afoot? We'll pause for a word from our sponsors and dive in. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Snagajob is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer? Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. So tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Here's where it gets crazy. So, yes, I had the same issue as Noel earlier. Not food desserts, which would be a much more pleasant episode, but food deserts, food desertification. It's a, I was surprised. It's a fairly recent term. 
Did you guys know that? Like this term only comes about in the 1990s. I, I didn't know about it until the, the, the mid 2000s, frankly. So, you know, there you go. Yeah. And it's not a U.S. created problem, or at least the language describing it isn't it originates in Scotland when there was a public housing development out there in the 1990s and it uh, did not have access like the people living there did not have access to healthy foods to nutritious foods let's say right and this idea describes something that you have doubtlessly seen yourself if you've ever been in uh, the if you've ever been in what people would describe as the rougher part of a city you know what I mean or you've been Everybody knows what we're talking about. Like you go, you go by um, the the strip in a community where there's nothing but dollar stores and fast food places. That's right? where I live. <laughs> I, I live there. <laughs> Every time a new thing opens, we're hoping, come on, restaurants. You nope, it's another gas station. Um, you know, it's really dollar stores, gas stations barely what you'd even call liquor stores, barely what you'd call a bodega, you know? So it is the reason I kept talking about McDonald's is because that's the closest thing resembling a restaurant <laughs> that's near me. Um, but you know, a lot of times areas like that also of course are uh, ground zero for gentrification. And over time, you know, they change, but it doesn't benefit the folks that have lived there for years who have had to deal with this food desert or this food shortage, and then are ultimately, unless their own generational property, uh, are, are essentially priced out. Yeah, and I like that you're pointing out the intergenerational aspect of this. So let's break down this conspiracy. Food deserts earn their name because they're like physical deserts. They're areas where uh, it is more difficult to hunter-gather nutritious foods, basically. We're talking about hunting and gathering. Still very popular with the human species. I would maybe translate that to to by foot, right? To, to walkable areas or places, yeah. Yeah, just transit in general. Mm -hmm. That's another piece of the puzzle. So there, it's tough to traverse these areas, you know, think about like if you are in and we'll get to an example of this in a second, but think about if you are in um, you have grown up in an area that was historically segregated, quite possibly by the federal government itself. You got redlined and later the policy makers of your municipality said, you know, the perfect place to put an interstate through it's this community, the ones who can't fight back. And so, boom, the interstate goes in. Now, let's say there was a grocery store that used to be a few blocks away, and you have to walk across somehow a six-lane interstate just to get to that grocery store. Oh, and then add to that, the corporate owners of the grocery store close it down because they say there aren't enough profits to be made year over year. And then maybe there is... Uh, maybe there's public transit if you're lucky, but probably not, probably not super great public transit. And let's say you take a bus, you take a bus to like a, a grocery store, a fancy grocery store, right? Like a, a Whole Foods or something. First, you can't buy anything super perishable because it has to survive that hour and a half. Again, if you're lucky bus ride back to your place and it's super expensive. How are you going to afford it? Why not? 
why not just say, hey, we're going to have a night out and get the kids some fast food, right? Because, you know, they're four or whatever. They're not going to know any better. It's going to be a treat. Well, yeah, and even more common, just get food from like a dollar store or family general or whatever they're called in that area because you can actually afford that food. But it's going to be either canned or prepackaged or processed and just not not as nutritious as something you could get from a larger grocery chain. A hundred percent. Yeah. And and lest we sound like we're talking down at all, right? We're I I at least will speak for my part here, dietarily, I am a walking garbage disposal. It is insane. <laughs> like I, I have never said no to to any food. So I'm I'm not one of I I'm not a a a, a fancy organism. You know what I mean? Uh, so we're not we're not here to preach to people or to lecture people on some sort of uh, sanctimonious do better kind of speech. Those are inappropriate and they're not helpful. What is helpful, we hope, is to understand how this situation came to be. In the United Kingdom, in the US, in Australia, Canada, New Zealand, all of Five Eyes, basically, people still don't understand what caused food deserts. Uh, Matt, in in our preparation for this episode, you you went into some maps regarding food deserts, right? And how how these things zone and one of the one of the most crazy parts of this is that we know some of the factors influencing these regions and those can help us Com- literally comparing maps that are in, that are um studying seemingly unrelated very specific things, comparing those maps and overlaying them will tell us how this situation took shape. And I argue it is a conspiracy, but it's an accidental conspiracy, as dumb as it sounds. Uh, it's like a byproduct, right? I mean, mm-hmm. more than anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just so. I mean, so Matt, can you describe a little bit about these maps just for someone who's unfamiliar? Uh, yeah, there's a map you can check out right now if you have the time and access to your phone, like if you're not driving. Uh, you can head over to the United States Department of Agriculture's Economic Research Service Atlas Map. Uh, so you 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 can probably find it by searching for USDA Food Access Research Atlas. That is uh, the title of it. And it just gives you a full map of the United States. At least, is it, does it include Alaska? I don't think it includes, oh, it does include Alaska. And it basically has all of Alaska as a food desert. Wow. Um, it, sh- it has four things you can click on from different years. Right now, I think it's just representing, what is this, 2015 and 2019, because it's got census data that it's using to, to make these calculations. It has to do with low income and then low access to food, and then putting those two factors together and essentially giving a score. Um, and you can you can add or subtract variables on here, um, like how far of a distance a certain area is to a place that would have nutritious food. Uh, I'm going to give you one specific here. 
If you zoom way down into Atlanta, into the area where I lived, I looked at my address just to see how they categorize that area. And it's very interesting, guys. There's a strip of that is a neighborhood where I used to live. Mm-hmm. It says that it is low income and low access at one half and 10 miles. Now, if you click on that and try and get more information, it says low-income census tracts where a significant number of share of residents is more than one half a mile urban or 10 miles rural from the nearest supermarket. So that would mean one half of a mile from a supermarket. But if you've lived in that neighborhood, like me, you know that on one side of the neighborhood, exactly on the line where it says it's low-income, low-access, there is a Kroger. And on the other side of that same tract, there's a Publix. So I want, like, it makes me wonder how much of this data is just from census information, from like uh, wide shot gathering of information, and then how much of it is actually drilled down specific information about families that really do not have access to food. Yeah, it's like uh, you bring up a great point. It's like Noel was saying the the question is access right can can you walk to this place right can you walk home do you you can do you need a car yeah and <laughs> and and how current is this information right when most people think of a food desert they don't think of a place where the line of demarcation is a Publix and a Kroger. By the way, side note I found I, I find so many irrelevant facts you guys uh Kroger is about to buy another grocery chain. Uh, the monopoly continues. It's Albertsons or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, you know, you know the score. So maybe if podcasting doesn't work, we'll get into the grocery monopoly business. I'm becoming radicalized. I want to be a deli man. Diving into, into food research, I am absolutely becoming radicalized. <laughs> Good. Well, the, but but you. You'd make a great point because just because there's a Kroger and a Publix there doesn't mean people can afford to buy even fresh, somewhat inexpensive foods there. Like you, some people just can't. So like, where would you get your food then? Even if there is a grocery store. Do, do you, Matt, delineate the, uh, uh, like priciness between Kroger and Publix? I've always thought of Publix as the more like upscale kind of, but I also, the one near me is always picked over and weird. You'll get tricked. You can get tricked because, look, I, I've i been going to Kroger's for all of my adult life. There's always been one close enough that it's been my primary grocery store. And I've got one of those cards that they get you to sign up for where you put oh, all nice. your personal information in there. And oh, Kroger. Then, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. I thought you were public. Public doesn't do that for whatever reason. No, I have the Kroger well, Plus Publix card. Public is also way better to its employees. It is. I said it. And no, no, you're right. But what I'm saying is I used to only go to Kroger because it felt like I was getting much better deals there. And I was oh, saving a lot of money because of really the system. So. It's an illusion of, no, it's of another savings. conspiracy. Mm-hmm. And oh, I've recently gosh. switched and it's nothing to, you know, sorry, Kroger. It's just <laughs> K-Raj. Sorry, K-Raj. Yeah, no, this is, that's a beautiful thing, man, because... Well, it's an insidious thing, but it's beautiful that you're pointing it out and you're aware of it because just like Sesame Credit in China, what happened with the the Kroger discount card or whatever nomenclature they put on it is in the beginning to incentivize people, you could save a 
we could save some chump change, right, on specific items. But as it became more commonplace and normalized, it, it the reverse occurred. So now to get a regular price, you have the Kroger card. You're essentially getting taxed a little bit more if you don't play their reindeer game. Now, I, I don't know if Kroger is a sponsor of this. I don't think I'm saying anything controversial. Uh, I'm certainly not saying libel because everything we're saying is true. <laughs> this is, this well, is a, it's a data yeah. game now and it's helping it's helping the grocery chain know what to order, like who's buying it's not necessarily you the individual buying specific things. It's more what are the trends, right? What do we need more of? What do we need less of? Ugh, but it's still gross. They're not yeah, they're not sweating they're not up at night in a corporate boardroom with their shirt sleeves rolled up, terrified whether Paul Decket will order more avocados. <laughs> no, no. But, but, but have you ever thought about that? The the, the logistics of managing perishable mm-hmm. food oh, items yeah. like that. That's like, you know, If you don't do it right, it's just going to rot on the shelf. So you really do need a little extra data, you know, to help with that. But it also, I think, if there is any benefit to the 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 whatever you know um, bonus card situation, is it does teach the system what coupons to spit out at you. That's true. Yeah, it's targeted advertising, but also consumer data is should be treated as a extra income stream for any company. It doesn't matter what they are ostensibly selling you. It's what pieces of you they're selling to someone else, which is frightening. But anyway, yeah, this just-in-time supply chain approach, these logistics, that's another part of food deserts. We know the factors influencing these regions, and this is where we see our conspiracy really start to firm up. So food deserts tend to be uh, inhabited by low-income residents with not the best access to transit, and that makes those areas less attractive, a.k.a. profitable, for large supermarket chains. And again, we're not talking down because Matt Nolan, uh, your faithful correspondent over here, we have all lived in these areas as well. You know what I mean? Uh, These things, though, as normalized as they have become, it is crucial for us to note that food deserts are not naturally occurring. They are the result of systematic, entirely human social decisions over the course of generations. It's deeper than rap. You know what I mean? It dates back to zoning, which sounds like such a boring thing until you realize how dangerous it is in the modern day. Urban planning has been used. Urban planning has been weaponized. That's the best way to say it. It has been used to segregate the uh, segregate members of the U.S. population for decades and decades. Gerrymandering anyone? Gerrymandering is another part of it. Yeah, man, it's it's the oh, gerrymandering is about to encounter a brand new renaissance, depending on how things go. That's a it's weirdly enough an apolitical point. It doesn't matter how you vote; you should not like gerrymandering. Well, and anyone who's not familiar, it's like a term that was like I think it was some sort of made up mythical monster because of how bizarre the lines looked that were drawn to to you know uh, separate voting blocks. They they refer to them as the, the gerrymander, like I guess like the Jabberwocky or something, but it's 
essentially creative, uh, you know, line drawing um, to create systems that I guess generate the desired outcome of those creating the the delineations. Was that about right? Yeah, yeah, nailed it. Uh, gerrymandering was invented by Jerry Mander. Uh, Dr. Mander was a cartoonist working in the 1930s uh, who was mistakenly hired to map political districts, to map voting districts, and he just drew cartoons. This is BS, right? Mm? No, no, it's true. No one fact-checked it. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So it's... (laughs) Yeah, no one, no one checked that. Just take it as an article of faith. But Jerry hey, we Mandarin got we got a message from Keith that yelled at me for saying something about Timothy McVeigh or something like that in the last episode that I was giving out false information. But I just misspoke. So uh, I just was. Hey, we do that sometimes, or we have fun with language and try and be silly and ha- and make a joke on the show. Just a message to you, Keith. One of my favorite uh, websites for news is articlesoffaith.com. Some, some great journalism there. I'll tell you, you know, speaking of great journalism, we can see some fantastic scholarship describing food deserts. Okay, so gerrymandering, right? That's a real thing. And it's, I would argue, it is bound up in the processes that led to food deserts. And even the term food deserts is controversial. We're also talking about stuff like redlining or yellow lining. These are nefarious urban planning practices that targeted certain community necessities. Where does the school go, right? Uh, where, Where do the roads run? How do we worry about public safety? And weirdly enough, everything is affected by this, even down to the access to food. Uh, I mentioned that not everybody likes the phrase food desert. This is where we need to shout out uh, Professor Ashante M. Reese, who is a food justice scholar. And uh, Dr. Reese prefers the term food apartheid, uh, which emphasizes the, um, the segregationist basis of this stuff. It's the zoning codes. It's the lending practices. It's the discrimination that all combined to make some neighborhoods bad to live in. A desert occurs naturally, usually, right? (laughs) Apartheid is imposed. Yeah. Yeah. And this is part of a large feedback loop. Here's the story, quick and dirty version. In 1933, in the United States, there was a big housing shortage, right? The federal government, Uncle Sam, said, okay, we are going to put some of that taxpayer money into making more houses. We got to have more places that are affordable for people to live. Now, granted, this is during the Depression. This is like New Deal era. The the current ruling class of the United States would never do something like that today. What they would do instead is try to, um, you know, monetize it and accelerate inequality. But the the New Deal legislation wasn't uh, wasn't a great deal for everyone. That's why it was called the Great Depression and the New Deal, and not the New Depression and the Great Deal. So there's this author. That really, really impressed me. Uh, wrote a book called "The Color of Law." Richard Rothstein talks about how these housing programs that started under the New Deal 
were functioning as a state-sponsored system of segregation, which led to the nutrition access problems that haunt the United States today. If we talked about the basics, even just the basics, it's so messed up. So the Federal Housing Administration, FHA, established 1934. They said, let's build more houses. But let's have some caveats. So the Federal Housing Administration, which was created in 1934, essentially escalated segregation by refusing to insure mortgages uh, in and around African-American, predominantly African-American neighborhoods. Um, At the very same time, the FHA was subsidizing builders building new properties, uh, mass producing these entire McMansion kind of, you know, uh, enclaves, uh, these subdivisions for white members, uh, residents of the United States, uh, with the requirement that none of the homes, literally, requirement that none of the homes be sold to African Americans. Um, African Americans and other people of color were left out of these new communities. Again, Ben, you, you mentioned earlier the, the importance of the idea of legacy kind of ger- generational ownership because folks were literally cast out of the system. So if they didn't already own or weren't intimidated into selling, which was a thing, or, you know, what, what have you, um, it was very, very difficult to, to get in, to become a property owner in certain areas. And it, it cre- this is redlining, man. This is... It's insane. You say it out loud, and all this stuff sounds so outlandish and fiendish, but this stuff really happened. It was a policy. Yeah, 100%. And look, the folks who were adversely affected by these policies, they didn't disappear as much as some factions of the government clearly wanted them to. Instead, like everybody else, they grew, they lived their lives, they had families. These later generations had families as well, but they were put at this tremendous disadvantage. They did not have the opportunity to garner that increased generational wealth and with it, socio-political influence. For a very long time, they were simply not allowed into the conversation. And there are consequences to this. There are consequences that affect everyone. We're going to pause for a word from our sponsor, then we'll fast forward to the present. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. 
Snagajob is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand, Temp to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. So tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We've returned. We're in the present. We're no longer in the 1930s. All that stuff is still affecting everyone you know if you live in the U.S., but now we're in 2022. This stuff matters when we look at food access because as a result of these earlier decisions, these earlier attempts at apartheid, retailers, private corporations, are less willing to go into poorer areas. So we know about the concept of redlining now, but supermarket redlining is a thing. Larger grocery stores might refuse to move into uh, a lower income area, or they might shut down an existing store and say, hey, let's move to the place where we can sell you know, more high profit items. And to be honest, I know it sounds like we're, we're taking a hit out on grocery stores, but uh, most grocery stores count their profits in pennies, not in pounds. You know what I mean? Like they're, they're getting that 89 cent can of, um, what are the creepy peas? Lesseur peas? They have like the silver. They're always creepy to me because the label says very young, very sweet, you know, little peas. Young, supple, baby peas. Yeah, yeah. So they're buying, you know, you're buying that for like 89 cents or something. The grocery store is getting that for maybe like a little bit less. They're not, they're not making necessarily a ton of money per item. So they're very conscious of how to increase their margin. So for them, they're not necessarily being these evil Monty Burns-esque villains when they say, 
we have to move this store to a wealthier suburb. They're thinking, how do we make profits? Yeah, it's exactly what we talked about. It's a it's a perishable problem, right? Because you can only keep so much inventory in your store before it goes bad, especially if it's fresh. If it's like produce, meat, that kind of thing. If you don't sell that stuff, that's all lost profits. And you have to throw it away or find a way to donate it, but you're not going to make money on it. Absolutely. And you know, Matt, that's something that's very close to me as well for doing food activism in the past, getting detained for it because you can't walk around and give away food. What a, what a world. But uh, there's someone else we want to bring into the conversation. A professor named Julian Igemen, who actually wrote for the website, The Conversation, and puts it this way. There may be a cultural bias amongst these retailers. They may have already decided, based on some you know algorithm or calculation, that it's there's no percentage in putting their outlets in places with a with a kind of population that they don't like or don't see as profitable. Uh, this professor points out that supermarkets fleed Queens in New York City. They they. Like en masse, they started leaving Queens in the 1990s, and the Consumer Affairs Commissioner of the time for New York City, a guy named Mark Green, put it this way. He said, first, they fear they don't understand the minority market, but second is a knee-jerk premise that black people are poor and poor people are a poor market. I don't know Mark Green's accent, but I think uh, I think Mark is making a really good point here. And so now all these things moved out, less healthy food options, often at a higher price. How messed up is that? They take over in these areas. Like if you have, if you've been like Noel, you mentioned dollar store, you mentioned Matt dollar general, uh, you can, you find food options there, but also sometimes they're more expensive than what you would find in say a farmer's market. I just want to make a comment here. I, I mentioned the Kroger and the Publix that were on either side of the neighborhood where I lived, right? So on the over by the Kroger, it's almost all lower cost apartment houses all up and down this strip of a, a road called Buford Highway. If you go into that Kroger, the produce, the fresh produce feels as though it is already days old when you walk in. The freshest produce that you can find there just feels old. And it, and you got some, like, elderly apples. I mean, no, I mean, for real. I'm serious. Like, if you go in there and you pick up a cucumber, it feels like it's been there for a while. If you go to the Publix on the other side of that neighborhood, where the massive private Catholic school is, okay, all that produce is super fresh and feels like it was brought in that day. It is very odd, and it it seems, you know, I, it's just a feeling, I guess, for me, but it feels as though money is being spent on one side and money is not being spent on the other side when it comes to fresh and fresh uh, produce. Can I ask, though, Matt, I mean, you're, you're talking about Buford Highway, a place that we all know and love and have mentioned on the show, I think, multiple times. It is a uh, absolute cornucopia of Asian markets, Latino markets, mm -hmm. taquerias, you know, any kind of cuisine you want. Is this an area beyond that or separated from that? Is is that part of Buford Highway kind of not in play here for folks that maybe 
have to walk or take the bus. I'm just yeah, wondering. It's, is it's that, all yeah. it's all about can is it easily walkable or can you get there through public transportation? That's at least my the calculation I'm making in my head. Because if you lived in that neighborhood, you could easily get to either one of those by foot. Also, shout out again to Buford Highway. The city of Atlanta is tremendously fortunate for that for that area. That's where the best restaurants are, <laughs> and uh, and. It's the only, I don't know if you guys heard this, it's the only place where MARTA, our public transit system, is profitable. It's Buford Highway Corridor. Uh, so, okay. The whole thing is that it makes me wonder if that that particular grocery store is making the calculation because, oh, maybe this is a poorer area on this side of Buford Highway or in this area of Buford Highway. So we will not put our, you know, spend our money getting the freshest produce. We'll spend it in other areas in the store. Or is it a matter of not getting the profits they need to continue that because of where it is, right? I mean, there's just so many factors in this. I, it just makes you want to explore it further. Yeah, and there's there's a banality to this sort of evil because people can just point at a spreadsheet point you know it's not our decision it's the algorithm i'm just doing what i'm told and it's a company <laughs> that has to make profits year over sure. year yeah. quarter over quarter you know so it's just weird it's not a non-profit grocery store you know what i mean this is there, there's a really interesting study by a guy named nathan mcclintock uh it comes from 2009 so it's kind of old now but uh it looks specifically at oakland california and it asked what caused these food deserts. Oakland had a, a huge problem with this. And it's a limited study, but it has a, it, I think it paints a frightening and accurate snapshot of the larger problem. You have, as we talk about this, uh, folks, you may be surprised by how similar your own experiences have been in your neck of the global woods. So racially segregated areas in this in in Oakland historically during the interwar period that's how far back it goes so between world war 1 and world war 2 right during this time these redlining policies forced people into segregated pockets of poverty and these you know these were absolutely normal people they're like we're not talking about a bunch of criminals getting put somewhere we're talking about average smart, go-getting people who were denied the opportunities that are, that are, you know, defining factors of the American dream. So if you fast forward past World War II into the 1950s, the Oakland City Council said, we're going to build some freeways where do we put them, right? Where do they cut through? And the, the city council, which was comprised of all um, white folks at the time, they said, we're going to put them through the neighborhoods that can't fight back. We're reducing their walkability. We're reducing the ability to have um, community centers, right? This is the example we teased earlier. The six-lane highway all of a sudden separates you from the place where you can buy fruit and veg. So this isolates West Oakland, primarily a community of color, from downtown Oakland. And what happens is the uh, people who can afford to move, move out of town. They go to wealthier neighborhoods like Oakland Hills. 
and there's a financial drain put on the communities made up of people who cannot afford to move. Then these suburban supermarkets that you can only get to by car in the 80s and 90s, they come around and there are no fresh food outlets in these historically discriminated against communities. So what's left, according to McClintlock, is a, quote, crude mosaic of parks and pollution, privilege and poverty, whole foods and whole food deserts. That's how it happens. And as terrible as it is to say it, if you're playing along at home, you're in, and you're like the majority of people in the world who live in an urban environment, you're not too far away from a place like this, which means that it does affect you directly, even if you don't think about it. That's where we get to like, why is this important? Said it earlier, it's an accidental conspiracy. The architects of urban segregation were definitely dicks, but they weren't smart enough to plan for food deserts. That's just a side effect of their <laughs> their terrible ideas about society. And and capitalism's most basic tenets. I think it's a combination of those two things. Like the they're required to just always make more money and to make a profit. Mm-hmm. Which is why there are so many great not solutions to the problem, but a lot of great individuals and organizations that are attempting to put a dent in the food desert problem. And guys, uh, in cities across the United States, at least that's really the only place where I looked it up, especially New York, Los Angeles, uh, Atlanta, even there are these companies trying to find a creative way to work within that capitalism rubric to find food that's either going to be thrown away or just is in excess and get it logistically to places that can take it. Like what you're talking about, Ben, when you know helping out giving, giving food away or finding a way to, you know, get food to people who need it. I was really inspired in research for this episode and the number of humans that are working really hard at this. Yeah. I mean, there are things like um, mobile food markets, you know, so think of a food truck, but it's selling produce. You know what I mean? That that is an innovative solution. There is a bit of hope. Like uh, Minneapolis, Boston, uh, those two cities in particular, I'd like to shout out. They have some excellent food programs and New York City, as you pointed out, Matt. Well, let me shout out a couple of things, just a couple of places real quick. Food Waste Reduction Alliance. Look them look them up. Rethink Food, New York City, NYC, Refeed America, Postmates Food Fight. I didn't even know that was a thing. I didn't know Postmates was doing a thing where they will deliver excess food for a restaurant to a charity. That's crazy. I didn't know that was a thing. Uh, there's, oh, oh, what the heck is it? Guys, do you remember the first time you went to New York and you saw that weird Pret-a-Manger? Yeah, Pret-a-Manger. They're everywhere, right? I didn't know. Listen to this, guys. I'm going to read directly from this article from The Counter titled, Should Restaurants Donate Excess Food? The answer is not so simple. Pret-a-Manger has 450 locations worldwide, and it has donated all excess refrigerated ready-made sandwiches and all their foods uh, since 1986. And what is it? In 2018 alone, that company donated 5 million pounds of food in the United States. So like 
individual companies, even though they're for profit, even though they're, you know, working to make a buck from you when you walk into those places can make a difference by setting something up internally or working with one of these other companies. Like, like I mentioned before, I have a weird shout out too. I would like to shout out immortal technique, uh, who is a rapper and activist, uh, a big fan. Uh, if you're a fan of hip hop, you are. And who who knocked about. down the towers? <laughs> uh the uh so immortal technique may not be for everybody <laughs> no i mean i'm giving a thumbs up <laughs> but uh but uh one thing that's really interesting that this guy does uh he's done a lot of food activism himself he's an old school new york cat so he he is aware of this and I just wanted to add to like, even here in Georgia, um, there is, you know, the I guess it's called the SNAP program. Um, it is, you know, food subsidy uh, that comes in the form of like a card that you can use. You know, it's kind of I think a little bit of a dated term is what people might know as food stamps, um, but it's on a card. And if you go to farmers markets here around Georgia, specifically, I know there's one in Athens that does it a very big one. And I'm pretty sure there are some in Atlanta. You will get twice the amount of the value of your snap money uh, towards that stuff, like towards those fresh, that fresh produce. And I always thought that was a very, you know, you don't think of Georgia as being particularly forward thinking in that department, but uh, I think that's pretty cool. You just got to find your way to one of those locations, right? That's the toughest part often for people. So there we have it, folks. This is, a conspiracy, but it it seems to be an accidental conspiracy. It's a feedback loop over generations, and it was caused by uh, bad faith actors who very likely did not think about the consequences, uh, did not think how this would affect generations to come in the modern day. But the good news is people are aware of this. If you if you want to be optimistic. You have good reason to do so. SNAP programs in places like Georgia, food activism in places like Minnesota, in Massachusetts, in New York, uh, in Oakland as well. There are people who are making a difference, you know, and you can be one of those people as well. This is where we want to pass the torch or you know what? We want to pass the plate to you. Right. We're we're all at the cookout together. So let us know what you think. Let us know your experiences with uh, so-called food deserts. Let us know what you think the solutions could be um, or, you know, failing that. If, if you don't have a uh, if you don't have some guiding policy points for us, uh, tell us the best restaurant in your town, because we love to hit the road. We might be uh, coming to a town near you soon. And we, uh, you know. We like to eat the good places. We try to be easy to find online. Correct. You can find us on Twitter. You can find us on YouTube. And you can find us on Facebook, where we have a group called Here's Where It Gets Crazy. Join that thing. Uh, we exist in those places out of the handle Conspiracy Stuff on Instagram. Conspiracy Stuff Show. Hey, and don't forget, we have a book. If you want to support this show, that's the best way. Buy a book. We really would appreciate it. And, gosh, if you do buy it, Please, please, please give us a rating on Amazon. I know it's Amazon. We know. Look, come on. It's Amazon. We know. But it's one of the best ways to support the book, which in turn supports us. And we're just inside this game together. And you can really help us out. Really appreciate it. Oh, also, we have a phone number. 
That's right. Uh, if you are not sipping on those social meads, but you have a voice, you have a song in your heart, and you need to share it. <laughs> I like that one. Uh, then why not give us a call? Say it with me. one eight three three stdwytk You'll call the live. You'll hear a hopefully familiar voice, and then you'll hear a beep like so, beep, and then you'll have three minutes. Those three minutes are yours, a wild new horizon. Run free. Get weird with it. Give yourself a nickname, a moniker. Tell us what's on your mind. Second most important thing, let us know if we can use your name and or message on air. First most important thing, nobody sweat the grammar there, uh, is not to censor yourself. If you have a story that needs more than three minutes, Write it to us. We read every single email we get. We cannot wait to hear from you. All you have to do is drop us a line at our address, where we are. Conspiracy at iHeartRadio.com. Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.